You are listening to Designing the Robot Revolution, the podcast about how we can create a better world using AI, robotics, and automation. My name is Jacob Magnell, with me, David Griffith-Jones. In the near future, remarkable changes are going to take place. Autonomous vehicles, also known as self-driving cars, will soon become ubiquitous and have the potential to transform our world in countless ways. They will drastically reduce the number of accidents on our roads. With computers in control of the vehicle, there will be no need to worry about distracted or reckless drivers. This will save countless lives and reduce healthcare costs associated with car accidents. Autonomous vehicles will transform the way we commute. Instead of wasting time and energy sitting in traffic, we can spend that time working, reading and relaxing. This will also reduce our carbon footprint by decreasing the number of cars on the road. Lastly, autonomous vehicles will will revolutionize the way we design our cities. With the need for parking space greatly reduced, we can repurpose that space for parks, bike lanes, and affordable housing. This will make our cities more livable and improve the quality of life for everyone. This is how our podcast intro about autonomous cars would have likely sounded in 2016. Back then, there was not a cloud on the autonomous vehicle sky. The promises of this technology was thrilling, and the possibilities seemed endless. To help us navigate this topic and understand why things are not looking too good for the rosiest visionaries of AVs, we called Drew Smith, design strategist in the automotive space and the biggest lover of cars that we know. Drew will shed some light on some of the challenges facing the autonomous vehicle industry and give us insights into what we can expect in the future. Let's get started. So hi, I'm Drew Smith. You might know me from podcasts like The Next Billion Cars or Looking Out or the newsletter of the same name. I also have a newsletter called Looking Out, which I published with a friend of mine called Joe Simpson. But I'm a strategy consultant and storyteller with and I start, but I started out as a car designer. So that means that I work with the automotive industry to imagine and articulate the future. And then I can help companies make that future a, a reality. So that in, in a nutshell is, is what I do. In terms of my background, trained as an industrial designer, as I said, then became a car designer and did an MA in automotive design at Coventry University, but then very quickly shifted away from the design of the physical products into the research that goes into the design of those products. And one of the things that fascinates me is the idea of a car as a cultural artifact and mobility as a cultural movement. And the stories that we tell ourselves about these products and services and and the impact that they have on our lives, both positive and negative. And I think one of the things that that has so fascinated me about my work in the automotive industry is when you're in it, it feels like your entire world. It's, it's so all encompassing. And yet there's so much happening outside the world of automotive, which is impacting the future of automotive that for me, it feels really important to bring that outside perspective in to get the automotive industry looking up and looking out thus the name of the newsletter and the podcast, to see what's coming down the, down the track. And I think particularly in terms of the conversations around autonomy, that's probably one of the biggest blind spots that the industry has, has run into because it has been looking at this primarily as a technology problem as opposed to a cultural problem. It's, it's an 
a very intense feel that you've found yourself in. Why, why is this your passion? Why have you chosen to deep dive into this? I, I mean, for a couple of reasons. I'm a massive petrol head, right? I, I just really love cars. I think anything that has the potential to so fundamentally impact something that's been a fascination of mine since I was knee high to a grasshopper, as we say in Australia, it, it's naturally going to draw me in. I'm, I'm curious to understand why this industry that I've been passionate about and interested in for so long is undergoing such drastic transformation and why they're, they're struggling with it so hard. If we, if we shimmy off what you were saying there, that it, there's so much transformation going on in the automotive industry. Yeah. And it feels from my perspective, I've never worked in the automotive industry. I was got super excited kind of mid 2015, 2016, was it? When mm. we were all promised this glorious future and I remember having a bet with my brother at the time. I think that was around 2017. And he said, we will have autonomous cars driving around Gothenburg within by 2023. And I said... How did that work out? <laughs> not, not so well, but I had the bet that we wouldn't. So I'm quite happy about that. But when we look at that, what we were promised, what it looked like it was going to be 10 years ago, where are we in... Why haven't we got the autonomous cars? I mean, it's such a it's such a naughty question to to unpack because there are so many different threads to it. You can look at it from the point of view of technology. You can look at it from the point of view of legislation. You can look at it from the point of view of culture, right? And and people's willingness to accept this this new kind of technology and the kind of leap, sort of intellectually and philosophically that it asks people to make whichever one of those lenses you look at the challenge of autonomy through you're going to find so many different variations on why things haven't worked across geographies right and i think one of the things that i've always believed in when it comes to the development of autonomy is context is king or queen context reigns supreme shall we say because the way a population thinks about robotics will influence the way legislators will create the conditions for autonomy to thrive or die. Also, the the relationship between the hard and the soft sciences, which is also something that is kind of very heavily culturally dependent, will impact how the people developing that technology will think of it in relation to the the people and the culture in which they they're, they're planning to situate that that technology. So, like I said, it's a knotty question to answer, and I don't think there's there's one neat answer that wraps the whole thing up. I think it's it's a whole intermingling of a bunch of of, of very different and complex issues that means that the promise of autonomy is is not not where we want it to be. I think let's let's not ignore that we have made enormous strides. I think one of the the big factors particularly in the west that has impacted our expectations of autonomy is of course we can't go without mentioning it Tesla's approach to marketing full self-driving and the massively inflated expectations that Musk and Tesla have set in the market on a suite of technologies, which I think pretty much everyone now agrees will never be able to deliver 
full self-driving. And in fact, it's delivering the opposite of what we want from full self-driving. It's delivering death and injury. So one of the organizations that you might have thought of as being champion number one of a consumer autonomous future is probably the organization that is single-handedly doing the most damage when it comes to being the foundations for a safe, reliable, humane, autonomous future. You, you touched there then, if we if we go back, you, you, you mentioned three specific things. You mentioned there's technology, legislation, and culture. And I, I really want to get on to talk about the cultural side of things and acceptance and and therefore how that informs legislation really want to get onto that but before before we do just double clicking on the specific technology part when it comes to autonomous cars what i anecdotally hear and this is me as absolutely i'm a civilian in this context but this is what the impression i get reading the general press is the technology struggles on the fringe cases that's what i interpret from reading the mass media that basically we're kind of 80 90 percent of the way there in terms of the tech yep. but actually it's that last few percentage of the fringe cases that is causing the tech not to be up to scratch and not safe enough is that accurate yeah absolutely but it's also in those fringe cases where death and destruction happens and i would argue that actually for for human driving <laughs> quite often it's in the fringe cases where death and destruction happens. So it, it's not like this is unfamiliar territory. What automotive manufacturers have managed to do over the years with things like ABS, with traction control, with ESP, with DSP, and now with things like ADAS, when advanced driver assistance systems, which is typically what people would consider to be level one and level two sort of autonomous functions. What they've managed to do is kind of increase the operating envelope of the vehicle to, to expand out into those edge cases. But that last little bit is really bloody stubborn mm. because you're dealing with random chance. You're talking with stuff coming right out of the blue and then asking a computer system to make a snap judgment on how to respond in that incredibly random event. So if we, we approach that not from the technology side, but the system sides in which the technology operates, how large would the, the sort of the, the structural reforming of a city, for example, be if we, we took the approach that, okay, the technology is where it is, but we just change traffic. We, we modify where the cars operate. Like, what would you have to do just to get a sense of how to control well, that? I'm, yeah. I, so, so, I mean, you've touched on a really interesting point, right? If you reduce the operational domain of autonomous driving systems, then they can function really, really, really well, right? So let's take as a case in point, Mercedes, I think their technology is called DrivePilot, maybe. They've just received level three certification in Nevada. But the, the number of constraints on that system, like the operational constraints, are, are, are really quite severe. It only operates up to 40 miles an hour. It only operates in good weather. But within those constraints, the system operates quite well. Blue Cruise, Ford's adaptive cruise control system, which offers hands-off driving, and GM Super Cruise, which does the same for General Motors products. Again, 
very domain restricted to areas of American highway that have been high definition mapped by the respective companies. Mm. The systems operate very well. If you think about how we would need to restructure cities in order to sort of prioritize the performance of autonomous vehicles within them, we you're talking about prioritizing the car within an environment which particularly in Europe is becoming increasingly anti-car right because it's very hard to ignore that cars are fundamentally a pretty shitty way to move people around cities so yes we could take a look and there are examples of 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 cities i can't think of of any off the top of my head around the world which are setting themselves up i mean san francisco is one they're not they're not really making any structural changes to how the city operates in order to accommodate cruise and waymo waymo and cruise are just using the city essentially as a as an open test bed to see if they can operate in that environment without structural changes and if you look into any of the stories about how cruise fails within the environment of San Francisco, you realize <laughs> you probably do need some structural changes in order to make this the, the service reliable and to minimize its impact on the other people living within it. There are stories of cruisers blocking up intersections. There are stories of cruisers obstructing first responders in emergencies. Quite crazy stuff. And And this is where you very quickly kind of get away from a technological problem i.e. how do we how do we situate technology both in terms of the car and in its environment in order to secure the 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 safe functioning and the reliable functioning of the vehicle you start getting into questions of culture and politics and well hang on why why should i be prioritizing my city where i'm a taxpayer in order for a private operator of autonomous vehicles to have precedence no sorry so has the industry given up on the idea that we're going to be able to solve those fringe cases and therefore have autonomous cars neatly fitting into our existing ways of working have we reached that point now where everyone's like all right we're not going to get there. I, I don't have a hotline to the CEOs of the industry unfortunately so i'm not really in a position to say whether the industry has given up i think At the very least, we are in a very deep trough of disillusionment about the technology. I think it's really interesting to note that Jim Rowan, the CEO of Volvo, who as a brand has historically been, can you be conservatively bullish? I think Volvo Volvo had a big vested interest in making autonomy work because it helps them sort of achieve zero fatalities, both inside the car and outside the car. And if you look at the investment that they've made with products like EX90 to fit them to to fit that that car with an incredibly sophisticated sensor suite, they've they've clearly put a lot of money into this. But Jim Rowan was in the press, I think it was last week or the week before, yeah, basically rowing back the expectations on what Volvo is realistically going to be able to achieve, and specifically the idea of of level five free floating autonomy. And perhaps even level four. It was a big step back. And what's your take then on now we've got to this point? Um, the the what what Elon sold us, what Tesla were talking about. Was that just naivety? 
an overconfidence or do you think that actually the engineers always knew this was going to be a problem and it was just very clever marketing? I, I don't want to discredit the work that the good work that has been done there. I think if you think of autopilot as an advanced driver assistance system for a long time, it was extremely good. It was a really good system. But what the company has done is so massively inflated the expectations of what the technology within the vehicles can achieve that people are now pushing it to do things that it doesn't have the capability to do. I'm not saying that it hasn't been designed to try and achieve those things, but it certainly doesn't have the capability to 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 achieve them. And that just gets proved out time and time mm. again. Do you think we will have a path forward after these this very deep trough? Do you think people culturally, individually will be able to trust autonomy? I mean, on the other end of that spectrum, we have all these developments in, in less maybe critical systems, but where we're getting used to interacting with machines in a very sophisticated manner. Will that help? Is there a path forward? Yes. Yes. But the question for me is time. Like how how long will it take? Because we're asking, we're asking essentially to upend a hundred and twenty, a hundred and forty years, give or take, of our relationship with the car, and that's a relationship that's predicated on our absolute control of the vehicle, right? And my experience recently of in the summer i drove 1800 kilometers across europe in a volkswagen t-rock which had wagon's latest advanced driver assistance systems so it had predictive cruise control had advanced lane keeping assist so on and so forth and it was frankly appalling it was so bad and so disruptive to the experience of driving now i'm somebody who likes driving so i'm perhaps i'm 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 a segment of of the audience, but there was there was nothing about that technology that made me feel like I would want to hand over mm. any significant degree of control to the vehicle. Now, this is the best that Volkswagen Group can do right now. And I'm sure that, and perhaps the environment in which it worked best was whenever I was stuck in a little bit of traffic, mm. when it kind of kept kept the car shuffling along. But for anything outside of that, it 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 really didn't feel like a a, a sufficiently advanced piece of technology right. as to be indistinguishable from magic. It was crap. <laughs> so, so I think yes, we will get out of this trough. I think it's a question of time, and then I think it's also interestingly for me a question of what will be the market for it when it actually arrives and how will particularly thinking in the context of urban environments how will cities have moved on because it's not as if avs are the only or even the best solution to personal mobility within city environments so we then start to ask questions about okay well where will they be suitable solutions for personal mobility and at that point particularly if we're talking about extra urban intra-urban there are planes there are trains there are all sorts of other devices that we can use as well i think what you've what you've just described true really illustrates 
why it's so much more than a technology problem. And that feeds in with what we mentioned before around culture and legislation. I'm just curious, in your work, who are you working with at the car companies? Are they the engineers? And and if so, how can you work with people who are who are mainly focused on the technology to lift their view to also understand the importance of context and culture and legislation like is is that something you are working with and how do you go about doing that i i would say if i think about the types of people who engage with the work that i produce they're typically people who are in product planning they're typically people in the design space and specifically the strategic design space and, and, and user experience and, and customer experience as well. And I don't have huge numbers of people engaging from the engineering fraternity, for example. And I think this points to a problem that I observed when I was working in-house in the automotive industry is the schism that exists between product design and Mm. product engineering within these organizations. And I think if we are to start to more effectively resolve the types of issues that we're talking about, we need to far better integrate these two disciplines to, to have any hope of, of, of successful solutions and that idea, as crazy as it sounds, is, is still pretty radical, right? It, it's even radical within big software companies to have kind of design and engineering working together harmoniously. I look to the work being done by Professor Genevieve Bell in Australia. She created something called the 3A Institute. And her hope is to create a whole new school of thought around engineering, one which infuses the social sciences. She comes from an anthropology background, but she became an Intel fellow. She rose through the ranks of one of the most engineering-led, male-dominated technology companies in the world to establish the idea of user-centered from, from, a, from an anthropology background. So she's created this new institute, and it's radical. Other design and engineering institutions in the world aren't approaching this. And so if we're only just establishing this new way of thinking within a pedagogical context, within within the education sector, imagine how much work we have to do to get that new way of thinking to filter through into organizations like car companies mm. that started as engineering and manufacturing businesses first and then really only added in design as the icing on the cake starting in the 19 sort of 30s 40s 50s that for me is one of the bridges that we absolutely must cross and i reflect on my time working for one of the OEMs and the design teams that were working on interfaces for advanced driver assistance systems now the relationship between those designers and the engineering teams which had developed those systems was nil. It, it was literally nil. On top of that, many of the designers who were designing those interfaces weren't actually drivers themselves, or if they were, they weren't actually driving vehicles on a day-to-day basis that had these systems fitted. Like, 
how how are you going to effectively design safe, understandable, consistent interfaces if you don't have that lived experience on the one hand out in the world interfacing with other people and the culture that you inhabit or you don't have the presence of the deep technical expertise to help you understand how these systems work and how they fail. So when when you look at what would be required, if we take the cultural and legislation angle, the lens on, on autonomous driving, what's what's missing in terms of the legislation part that would make the difference? If we lived in a... In a society where we the three of us now could make legislation that would enable this to work what what don't we have that would make the difference i mean consistency for a start because until you can get to a at least a supra regional if not international agreement on the operational domain or domains for these systems, automakers are essentially going to have to play whack-a-mole with regulations across various markets in terms of what works and how it works and and where it works and when it works. And I'm I'm far from an expert in legislation. And in fact, when I read policy documents, my eyes tend to glaze over. So I won't hold forth too much on on the topic, but I think standardization helps create the conditions for the market of adoption of, 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 of new technologies. And uh, we're seeing such a fractured regulatory environment across the world. I think perhaps the, the less democratic a, re- a regime is, perhaps the more likely it is that you will find the conditions to impose the types of regulation that will create um, significant operational domains for autonomous drive systems. And of course, I'm talking about China here, but at the total opposite end of the, the spectrum, if you look at a market like the United States, you have private enterprise, General Motors and Ford, taking it upon themselves to essentially create their own definition of, of kind of what the operational domain is and doing that in such a way that it's proprietary, mm. which then starts to raise a whole bunch of really interesting questions about who gets access to this technology, right? If this is about creating equitable, sustainable, accessible mobility futures for everyone, but it's Ford and General Motors that own the, the technology and it's Ford and General Motors that define the domain, doesn't sound particularly equitable to me. Oh, I was just thinking, do you think the way that Toyota, and I, I can see the scaling challenges with this, but they are they are creating a city in, in Japan, if I'm not mistaken, right? Yeah. Does that do anything? Does that change the equation? Because that seems to me like a little bit of a hybrid between the two, right? Well, I mean, let, let's take a lesson from architecture and, and look at which which architectural utopias have worked out in the way they're their 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 visionaries had hoped you know brasilia canberra you can look at any number or plans for for france we we for paris we we look we look upon those plans as ultimately being quite dystopian and the ones that that have been executed canberra's not too bad i mean canberra's a lovely place it's just very weird because it has no sense of center it has very little sense of place but brasilia as a as a as a functioning capital for for brazil is 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 pretty dystopian. I think it's it's nice to believe that we could 
sufficiently locked down an environment in which to make a technology work. But Christ, that sounds really sad. <laughs> like we're locking down an environment to make a technology work. Shouldn't we be opening up an environment to allow humans to flourish? You always get the extremes, don't you? It's kind of like China's the one thing, US is the other. Mm, and there's right. this hope that the European Union can kind of strike that balance, that it can be the right amount of bottom-up, but also regulated. And th that's the the hope for the EU as the kind of third major. Then, then I, I mean, if, 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 if that was the case, then why are we not seeing sort of, why are we not seeing the emergence of the tensions around this technology within the EU? And I, I think that's an interesting thing. Like it or not, you have to look to those polarities. You have to look to the extremes to see how different ways of thinking, how different cultural mindsets approach these techno-cultural problems to experiment with how they, they can fit because they have, for better and for worse, environments that are far more receptive to that kind of experimentation. Hmm. That's perhaps less the case, I would argue, in Europe. It's, it's, it's a much more conservative environment in which to be, be playing with these new technologies. I mean, look, I, I'm, I'm, I'm a massive fan of W140 series Mercedes. I, I've, I've owned a couple of them, and it just so happens that a W140 was Mercedes' first autonomous testbed. And this is back in the, the, the early 1990s. The thing required a van to drive along behind it to, to carry all the computers right to, to make the systems work so it's not as if oems and suppliers in europe have not been chipping away on at, at this but they're doing so in an environment where i would argue on a personal level quite rightly governments are like actually please don't please don't treat our citizens as crash test dummies mm. quite like our people we don't want to have their heads chopped off because they've run under a truck and full self-driving didn't see the truck oops yeah. But Drew, you have a very like specific perspective on this. You're a ma massive car enthusiast. You've been working in cars. You have been thinking about the cultural aspects and many other aspects that sort of intersect with autonomous drive. What would you do? How would you like prioritize investments within this space to do something that is valuable, not necessarily full autonomy? But valuable within say five years i mean first first thing for me would be like just drastically restrict kind of the operating domain of the vehicle so that you actually give the technology the chance to prove itself in a live environment give people the opportunity to experience it in a way that is not like cringeworthy it's not like those crappy little shuttle buses that you see running around corporate campuses no like let's let's get people out being able to use these pieces of pieces of technology in areas where it it is useful but where we can also really contain the risk to 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 the greatest extent possible and start to understand not just the remaining technological challenges but also start to understand the the, the cultural impact that these systems are having so that we can continue to work to a product market fit, I guess, at a psychological level between autonomous vehicles and, and, and people. 
I think the other thing that I would be doing is to think very, very hard about where it genuinely makes sense to deploy this technology. And I would argue, particularly from a European context, that is not in city centers. I I have a strong feeling that the ship is on its way out of the port as far as the, the future of the car and, and even the autonomous vehicle within urban centers is, is concerned in Europe. So it, it really does come back to defining a useful context for these vehicles and then essentially just kind of building reps. And you could argue that that's precisely what the Waymos and the cruisers of this world are doing, but they're doing it in a regulatory environment that allows them to kind of screw things up in some fairly horrible ways. I would be creating an environment in which the ability for a bunch of cruisers to get in the way of a fire engine was was not a possibility because, again, we get into a situation where we undermine trust in these systems, which is not going to help anybody. So without kind of trying to put you on the spot in terms of you know making predictions is is really hard but if we if we instead kind of phrase it as what what would be your hopes for what we might be seeing reasonably in the future what what are you hopeful about that we might be seeing in terms of those use cases that in 5 years or 20 years it's a I mean, first of all, I I wouldn't class myself as a futurist. I'm not particularly good at predictions. I, the other thing that I would say is, again, within a European context, I'm struggling to see really compelling use cases for autonomous vehicles that fulfill an ambition of more equitable and, and sustainable mobility which is is kind of what I'm about. That's sort of what I'm interested in. What was coming to mind was okay, can we identify can we identify mobility black spots, for example, where autonomous vehicles might be able to step in and provide mobility services that would otherwise be unavailable to a population. But then if I look at the march of e-bikes for example is that not a better personal mobility solution in probably 95 percent of cases than an autonomous vehicle purely purely from a position of cost like avs are they're, they're massively massively expensive and you look at one of the things that blows my mind is if you look at the amount of technology which is being put into into personal cars these days, you've got LiDAR, you've got radar, you've got sonar, you've got all the compute power required to bring it all together in the hope that at some point in the future, when the regulations allow, that vehicle will be able to offer, let's say, level three autonomy. All of that kit is still going to be sat on the side of the road 95% of the time. Like, fuck me, what a massive waste of money. <laughs> right? It's just mind-blowing. And, and this is for manufacturers who are also contending with the cost of electrification. But to get back to the point, I perhaps my vision is too limited, but I'm struggling to see beyond 
beyond better managing our interaction with traffic, I'm struggling to see a particularly compelling use case for it at this point in time. I can't believe I just said that, but there it is. But that's very focused on personal mobility, isn't it? Do you sure. see, for example, like Tesla trucks and that sort of, or whatever brand of trucks being long haul? Huge. I mean, yes, huge opportunities there. And of course, we already see autonomous vehicles operating in the mining industry, for example, back home in Australia, where I'm from. Autonomous vehicles have been working in mines for, for some time now. There is potential there, but let's not forget that those those trucks will still be operating in a mixed environment. They will be operating in and amongst non-autonomous vehicles. They will be operating on open highways. And yes, trucking companies may go down the path of developing their own version of Blue Cruise or Super Cruise or whatever and, and building their own high definition mapping. Sure. But I think that that idea of autonomous pods if we want to step away from 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 the personal and into the shared i think that idea of autonomous pods being the best solution for urban environments it's very hard to make that argument stack up for me what i would like to just if anyone has listened throughout this entire episode i think they're interested in the topic so therefore i think one good resource to continue learning about this stuff and getting more information about this is the next billion car that you've released one episode at the time of recording this and i think that the entire series is slightly maybe what's what is it about and when can we get to those episodes so the next billion cars was born out of a of a podcast project created by an Australian American came up through Silicon Valley moved to Australia a guy called Mark Pesci he's a futurist and the next billion seconds really is a project to understand how different types of technology are going to impact humanity over the course of the next billion seconds and I can't remember how many years that is it's not that many and we were having lunch in Sydney one day and uh, he walked me back to my office and then I got a message like two minutes later saying, come back downstairs, I need to talk to you about a podcast project. I'm like, okay, what is it? I have to get back to work. And he said, we're going to talk about the next billion cars. I'm like, huh, okay. I had done one podcast in my life before this and it's since turned into a multi-year collaboration between Mark, myself as sort of the the automotive industry insider slash outsider and an industrial designer and inventor by the name of, of Sally Dominguez, who's who's also an Aussie. In this current series, it's a series of four, we're revisiting sort of the big themes from our past seasons. So the first one, which you've referred to, was all about autonomy. The second one is about electrification. The third one, which we recorded last night, is all about Sal's pet, pet topic, which is hydrogen. And then the final one is going to be all about mobility. And with each of these episodes, it's interesting sort of looking back at what we've talked about in the past to see what's changed and also what hasn't. And in some cases, what's actually got worse. Awesome. We're going to link to that economy episode in our 
description and highly recommend everyone listen cool. to that because it's great absolutely fabulous listen yeah totally agree really enjoyed it learned so much from it so highly recommend listening to it you also have a newsletter with an accompanying podcast or is it the other way around looking out <laughs> Yeah, so so Looking Out is actually a project that was born of my time in Gothenburg and I was working there as a consultant and one of the things that was frustrating me was that that very inward-looking perspective that the automotive industry encourages amongst the people who are who are working within within the area that I'm concerned with which is primarily design and 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 strategy looking out was really born from the hope of being able to get people to look up and look out and to start to see the contextual factors that were going to be impacting on his mindsets and behaviors when it came to the purchase and use of automotive products in in the future and what joe and i try to do in the newsletter is to provide an interesting snippet that comes from the realms of, yes, the automotive industry, but design more broadly, culture and technology so that we can help expand the horizons, expand people's understanding of what's going on in the world so that they might be able to incorporate that into the conversations that they're having day to day at, at work. The podcast, which we have just published the fourth episode of was really just an opportunity for Joe and I to take the content of our iMessage stream, right? So all of the stuff that we talk about in between newsletter issues and share that with the world, sanitized, of course, a little bit, because we realized there was value probably in the conversations that we were having, but we weren't doing that in a way that, that other people would have access to. And it's 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 a really delightful coming together of two people i would say working with joe who is very much the industry insider i'm kind of i've got a foot in both camps i've worked in house i've worked in consultancies for the automotive industry but i've actually spent the majority of my career outside of the automotive industry so there's this interesting tension that opens up between us that that leads to some pretty sort of delightful conversations it's awesome and it's so many of the topics that sort of intersect with what we have been talking about on this podcast about how to bring that perspective into the mix of everything else that needs to fit together in order to do anything these days yeah the 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 i think the other thing that i don't know did either of you read the thing that i wrote about iVision d no the bmw concept no what's that Okay, so at CES, BMW launched a new concept car. It's called the iVision D. Mm. And what's unique about it is this extremely deep integration of what's known as a VPA or a virtual personal assistant, right? Now, what D proposes to offer you is not just an assistant but a friend and actually in the promotional material for the car in one of the videos d actually offers to be your soulmate now this is a really fascinating and kind of contentious issue because it suggests that a robot an artificial intelligence 
all of a sudden has a sufficient degree of intelligence and emotional understanding to be the peer of a human. Now, well, what I was going to say is the, the point of the piece that I wrote about Dee was to look at her advent through the lens of Western thinking about robots and Eastern thinking about robots. And respectively, Western thinking about robots kind of goes back to sort of the Enlightenment era. It's about four or 500 years old. Eastern thinking about robots has its roots kind of about a thousand years ago. And the two perspectives center around the idea of what it means for an inanimate object to suddenly possess human-like qualities. Now, in the West, historically, when we've spoken about something that tries to imitate life and human life in particular, we tend to talk about it as being possessed. There's some kind of devilish quality to it that we find quite repugnant. And it's always interesting when you look at the commentary online, particularly on Twitter, when you see the launch of a new Boston Dynamics robot. Generally, people are like, what the heck? No, just no, 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 no. If you take, if you, if you, if you look through the Eastern lens at robotics, at the core of many Eastern religions is this idea that an object can be animated by a benign spirit, a benevolent spirit. Yes, there are some evil spirits, but people tend to focus on invoking the, the positive. And so what you see, therefore, and, and Japan's history with, with robots is a really interesting example of this, is a much greater acceptance and openness to the idea that robots can play a valuable and positive role within our life. And again, I refer back to, to Genevieve Bell. There's a fantastic lecture which she gave on this topic, and I can share the link with you to, to, to share with the listeners, which goes into this in, in much more detail. But I think particularly in the West, we struggle to get beyond the idea that an artificial intelligence or a robot is somehow here to either displace us or kill us. And you only have to look at the, the canon of Western cinema dealing with robots, artificial intelligences, that they tend not to be happy stories, right this 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 aversion to 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 robots and and artificial peers is very deeply ingrained even her which is a love story has a really bloody sad ending to say nothing of the terminator movies for example so that's that's also something that you might want to kind of reflect on as as you're thinking about mm. our, our relationships with robot technology it's it's really really interesting from a from a from a cultural point of view and and from a psychology perspective really interesting and i'm fighting my inner western culture that's making me feel <laughs> <laughs> terrified of it Drew, th thank you it's been really really interesting thank you 
You have been listening to Designing the Robot Revolution. Don't forget to show this to a friend. I think they'll appreciate it. Have a great day. Is there a glimmer of hope from the EU? Are you kind of encouraged what's happening in the European Union? I hate to admit that I have very little overview <laughs> of, of what's happening in the EU, so I'm not going to comment on it. Yeah, yeah. I, I think it's it's in like a e the this isn't going to be in the podcast, but like I think you've got you've got you've got, you've got the the two. I have the, no fucking idea. <laughs> <laughs>